Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torques, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We're recording this on a beautiful Friday afternoon before an even more beautiful holiday Monday. But we are honored today and privileged to have David Oscar Marcus with us. And for those of you that don't know him, get out from underneath the rock you've been living under. But for those that do, let me give you the benefit of a brief bio. Uh, David is a practitioner based out of Miami, Florida, doing mostly federal white collar work, criminal defense work. But he's a trial and he's an appellate lawyer. And he's won tremendous cases in both fronts in various different courts. He's got a couple of things in common with us, albeit limited. I live in Atlanta. He went to Emory for undergrad. That's a touch point. John and I both went to UM Law School. That's where David began his law school career before going to the real Harvard, not the Harvard of the South, uh, before graduating. <laughs> He, um, he's been a federal clerk. He's been an assistant federal public defender. He's been an associate at one of the most prestigious, if not the most prestigious uh, criminal firms, maybe firms in general, uh, in DC, Williams and Connolly. And he's gone on to a tremendous success in private practice here in Miami. I think it's impossible to recount all of his successes, but you know, one that sticks out to me and probably anyone in the South Florida community or the criminal defense community at large, was when he got over 140 not guilty verdicts read out in a single case uh, involving his client, who was a doctor charged with, you know, in layman's terms, a pill mill prosecution. Um, like a prior guest, he's also an adjunct professor at the University of Miami School of Law. I think for the past couple of years, talking about white collar defense, and I'm sure the students are really thrilled to be able to have that opportunity to learn from you. And you know. Probably something that most people don't realize unless they're in the South Florida community is David created the blog for the Southern District of Florida, which for more than 15 years he's ran very successfully, where he talks about all kinds of things that are going on in federal courts around the country and obviously focusing locally for everything from judicial appointments to big decisions coming out of the 11th Circuit. Uh, I know for me, the first thing I started reading when I was in law school was that blog, ironically, and I've never stopped. So I'm very grateful to him for that. And he also more recently uh, has put out the For the Defense podcast, which everybody should check out. It's an interview style format. It's incredible. He has on federal judges, uh, incredible trial lawyers from around the country who have represented, you know, criminal defendants, some of the biggest cases you've heard of in national media. And he gets incredible insights from them on the nitty gritty. Um, and so definitely check that out. But Without further ado, David, thank you for joining us. I, I know that was uh, a lot of background, but I think it's important people know who you are. So tell us, how you doing? Thanks, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me. That was uh, quite an introduction. I really appreciate it and glad we have so much in common, including the podcast. You guys are the real deal. I love how you have it set up and and uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, obviously, you know, we were talking off air, uh, although I began my career doing criminal defense and John helped me out on a few cases then, what we do these days is almost exclusively civil. And it's single plaintiff cases. We usually are finding ourselves in state courts in Florida, sometimes federal courts. But you have the unique, I, th I think, luxury of knowing your venue is almost always going to be in federal courts, right? When you're doing criminal defense, the cases you take on, it may not always be in the Southern District of Florida, but it's going to be in federal district courts. Tell us um, about how that what that feels like to only operate within the federal system nearly exclusively? Well, I will say this, you know, it's interesting as as plaintiffs lawyers in state court, I think actually you have a lot in common with criminal defense lawyers, right? Like you don't want to be in federal court as a plaintiff's lawyer or as a criminal defense lawyer. It's not a great place to be. Um, you know, in federal court, a lot of times we call it the conviction factory. And I know for, for plaintiff's lawyers, um, you know, there's there's it's so much harder to get past summary judgment motions to dismiss as a as a plaintiff's lawyer in federal court very similar with being a criminal defense lawyer in state court there's just much more room to operate uh, much more room to get things done uh, much more difficult in federal court I grew up in federal court as a law clerk and so I ended up and as a federal defender so I stayed uh, in in that family and and you know for better or for worse that's just what I'm comfortable with but um, my state court brethren always joke that I'd be better off uh, practicing over there with them. I, th I think that's a, a very fair characterization. I, I would agree with that generally. Uh, there's 
you know, less latitude to work with, generally shorter timeframes to do your job. And the stakes are the same for your client. You still have to get the result as best you can. Um, one of the interesting things, I, you know, nobody has a crystal ball, but you, one of, I think, was it your very first blog post 15 some years ago when you said the Supreme Court needs a Floridian on there? It's bizarre that we haven't had one. You were a little bit premature. <laughs> you were an early adopter of the theory, but here we are. And, you know, Justice Jackson will soon be taking the bench. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and your thoughts on the subject? Really amazing. So I started the blog, yeah, over 15 years ago, uh, 4th of July weekend. I was bored one weekend, similar start to the podcast, the, the beginning of the pandemic, I was sort of bored and wanted to try something new. Uh, and, and the blog sort of took off um, and, and a lot of judges liked it. And so it, it got momentum. Um, and the first post, you're right, was this was this calling for um, a Florida Supreme Court justice, uh, justice to come from Florida to get to the to the Supreme Court. We ended up with a wonderful, wonderful uh, justice, Justice Jackson, who grew up uh, going to Palmetto High School debating. I went to the rival high school, Killian High School down here, uh, and grew up with her uh, on the rival debate teams. We traveled a lot together. She, you couldn't ask for a nicer, smarter, better person. Um, one of the things that really bugged me during her confirmation hearings was how they went after her for being a criminal defense lawyer. It, it, it is so wrong and crazy that they did that. Um, they also went after her for some of her rulings as a district judge um, in which she sentenced, you know, some of her sentencings, which were right in line, by the way, with all of her Republican uh, colleagues. So, so they were just looking for an excuse. It's hard to imagine someone more qualified, nicer. It should have been a hundred to zero vote. Really should have been. Yeah, I think, first of all, I share the same sentiments. You obviously have a, a, a more a longer history to appreciate it, but I've long felt like diversity on the bench and, and I'm primarily talking about diversity of professional workup before you take it or get elevated to a certain part is so important. You know, the bench I've always felt like should be representative of the people before it, including the lawyers, especially the lawyers. Uh, and even on the civil side, what we find, I think on the federal side, what you find, uh, when I say civil, I'm talking about in state court and civil courts when you walk in, is it's a lot of judges who have more often than not experience as either prosecutors or insurance defense lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I know that on the federal bench, odds are they were probably a former federal prosecutor or worked for the government in some capacity, just, you know, from a statistical probability standpoint. And that always struck me as odd because I'm a little biased, but I'm trying to be objective when I say being a criminal defense attorney and representing individual human beings, American citizens, standing up for the constitution. I mean, how could that ever be a black mark on your resume for purposes of qualifications. I don't think it can. And so I'm very excited to have that diversity of thought and experience uh, taking the highest court in the land. You know, in the old days, it used to be quite a badge of honor. John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, all criminal defense right. lawyers. Um, now, of course, it, it's a black mark, which is which is insane. And, and in a lot of ways, again, here, I think you see the crossover between plaintiff's work and criminal defense work. You see very few plaintiff's lawyers uh, make it to the bench. It's, it's bizarre, um, probably because you guys are making too much money. But, <laughs> but you know, the, the truth is we need more people on the bench who have represented individuals, as you say. Right. Um, most of the judges were either prosecutors who never represented anybody or they were corporate lawyers who represented corporations or insurance companies, as you say. It's very different when you have a person who you're representing, an actual live person, whether it's criminal defense, plaintiffs, you get to see how the case has affected them personally, their family, something that prosecutors and corporate lawyers don't see. And, and it's important to have that experience on the bench. I think, you know, we need many, many more uh, folks like that to, to be representative. Yeah. And I think it was, um, I forget which guest it was on your podcast maybe Justice Breyer's, Breyer's brother uh, right. um, was talking about that, that generally speaking, the federal bench needs it. Um, it's a good thing. And I think where we see the potential issue with it the most is probably in sentencing. And I'm theorizing, it's not like a guarantee or there are no hard and fast rules, but I just think if you haven't had the benefit of defending someone through a sentencing, that human being's life, all the collateral damage and consequence, if you've only been a prosecutor and then you've become a judge, it might be a little difficult to have a uh, a full picture, a full you know idea of the spectrum of what's at stake and what a fair 
sentence should be. And I know not because of uh, your inability to get remarkable results, just generally most cases resolve. And please, you're very familiar with sentencing. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sentencing is one of the few areas that I don't think our, our citizenry knows a lot about. So, you know, unfortunately, we have more people in jail for longer than any other country in the world. It's, it's crazy when you think about it, how many folks we have in locked up and for how long. And that's because one of the reasons is what, what you talked about, diversity on the bench. And, and we have people who are sentencing uh, individuals without any concept of what it means to send somebody to jail for 15 years, 12 years, 20 years. They throw out these years uh, as if it's candy and, and people end up locked up. It ruins generations of, of people to, to lock up somebody for 15 years um, ruins an entire family. And, and many times what we've learned is the difference between a five-year sentence and a 15-year sentence in terms of things like deterrence make no difference. So if we're trying to deter others from, from committing future crimes, you know, a five-year versus 15-year sentence makes zero difference. So why are we putting people in jail for 15 years? There's so many bad reasons. We now have the business of jails, right? Um, sure. All these private companies have, have built these jails and, and we need to keep funding them. And it's awful. Um, I could go on and on about sentencing, but we just sentenced too many people for too long. It's, it's, it's really bad. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I want, I want John to be able to get, get a word in here. I'm just excited to have you, but no. I do want to ask this because we're on the topic of sentencing. I think there's two things that stick out to me, uh, a lack of appreciation by the general public on what I'm going to call a trial tax which is not theoretical, uh, it exists. I think you could just do the math, math and, it, and it shows in the data. Uh, and then there's this issue of, in, you know, for us, I'm gonna speak from my personal experience because I've done some criminal defense and, I, and I've done a lot of civil work recently. You know, it's impossible that 98% of cases, both sides reach a fair resolution, so they decide to settle. It's, it's impossible. Uh, and, you know, I always, tease people I speak with, but I'm like, in the civil side, we shouldn't, we should be trying at least 50% of our cases. Insurance companies aren't always reasonable. There's, we should just say no and go to trial because we don't even have the risk of a trial tax, right? Juries are deciding the sentence, so to speak, the judgment. But in the criminal setting, the same concern exists. What is it? 98, 97 and a half percent of cases, they're all getting resolved in plea. And I think the reason is not guilt or innocence. The reason is the incredibly high stakes that the government has to play with with your life, decades in prison, life imprisonment. And uh, even if you're truly innocent, it's hard to pull the trigger and say, I'm willing to roll the dice, right? Yeah, this is this is another really horrible part about our justice system. It used to be for many, many years constant that about 80% resolved and 20% went to trial. This is pretty much throughout the 20th century. The, the number remained constant at about 20%. Even that number was arguably low. It used to be higher than that. But, you know, in the 1900s, about 20 percent of cases went to trial until the sentencing guidelines were passed in the mid 1980s. And those guidelines made it so risky, as you say, to go to trial. So if you go to trial and lose, you could get a sentence five, six, sometimes 10 times higher than if you were to plead guilty. So, you know, many people, innocent people faced with the prospect of a sentence of 15 years, 18 years, um, when they're offered two or three years, will say, listen, I'll take my two or three years, um, even though I think I have a good chance to win at trial, because the risk, even if it's 20% or 30% that I'm going to lose and do 15 or 18 years, I can't take that risk. So I will take the plea, even though I'm innocent, or even though I think I have a good chance, or even though I think they're pushing what the statute was meant to be. A really good example is this varsity blues case in, in Boston, um, where they prosecuted a bunch of parents for trying to get their kids into colleges and, and doing what all of us would agree is immoral, right? Like faking tests, building resumes that, that didn't exist. All of us would agree immoral. But is it a federal crime? And almost everybody pled guilty because the risk of going to trial was years and years in prison when you could get 60 days, 90 days, a year at the most. And so instead of challenging this idea, is this a federal crime? Like who lost money here? The schools made money. Did anybody actually lose anything? Is this a federal fraud offense? People pled out because the risk of going to trial was, was too high. And this happens every single day in my world. I have a, the conversation across my desk with, the, with a defendant and their family. You know, should I take a plea or should I go to trial? And you know, it's easy for me to say, let's go to trial. You know, but then the person's looking at decades in prison uh, when they can get two or three years. It's, it's crazy. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty terrible. But from my scene, I mean, look, I'm not a big criminal defense guy like you know you two gentlemen, but. You know, I see it's not even just a trial tax on that. If you do a discovery tax, like say you have a, a sex crime and you want to depose the victim to see if what they're offering. And as soon as you want to depose the victim, offers are all off the table. You know, you're going to trial. And it's like, you know, that shouldn't be the case. And, you know, back to, David, the point you made about privatizing prisons. You know, we, we have we represent and do civil rights cases in the, um, the civil context in federal court against we've had a few cases now against not just private prisons but the private medical you know entities that work in the prisons and what we've seen from some of these contracts is that there is a quota of bodies that have to be delivered by the county to a private prison and if they don't the county has to pay money that's gross how is that even how is that even that's that's it's it's gross to me that they have to deliver bodies, meaning people, human beings, citizens of this country, have to be delivered to this prison per month. And if they don't meet that quota, the county has to pay them money. You know, and that, that kind of furthers that the problems with a, a system that is designed to imprison rather than to, to really find justice is what, you know, the way I look at it. it. It's like the old quotas for speeding tickets, right? Like we have people, you know, you know, the cops sitting by the side of the road because they need to make their monthly quota with tickets. It's very much like that with federal cases and state cases now as well. There's so many prosecutors and agents to justify their existence. They have to bring a certain number of cases and the jails have to fill a certain amount of beds. It really is insane. I, I will point out one thing on the discovery point, which which, you know, you raise, which is fascinating. So. In civil cases, you get broad discovery, right? You're allowed to take depositions. You're allowed to get people's documents, files. You're allowed to find out what, what's involved, as it should be. In state criminal cases in Florida, you're also allowed depositions and pretty broad discovery. But Florida is only one of three states where you're allowed to take depositions. There are no depositions allowed in 47 states and in federal courts. So in my world, in federal cases, we can't take depositions. We're not entitled to witness statements until they take the witness stand. So I don't find out, I don't get an exhibit list. I don't get witness lists. I don't get witness statements. We have to do our own uh, investigation. We'll call witnesses to speak to them. They don't have to speak to us. They don't have to be deposed. Um, it's an insane world. So when money's at stake in your guys' world, of course you get full discovery. When somebody's liberty is at stake um, in 47 states and in federal land, we get no no de depositions, no witness statements. Um, it's it's quite a quite it's a perverse. Story. I'm going to yeah. say it. My, this is my opinion. I think it's perverse. Yeah. Let me ask you because you've been practicing for a while. Has there been have there been any meaningful amendments to the rules of procedure, federal rules of criminal procedure, to give any additional discovery, or has it long been the same? It's always been the same. Now there have been after certain crazy cases like the Ted Stevens case where there's Brady violations. And I say crazy. I mean, those cases happen every day. It's just that that one got a lot of limelight. There's always a push to try to reform um, how discovery is done, but nothing ever gets done. Under the Obama administration, they encouraged their lawyers not to wait until trial to disclose um, witness statements, but it wasn't required. Um, that happened again under Biden, but again, not required. Um, we need to really have some criminal justice reform on the discovery end, on the sentencing end. Um, otherwise, it's it's going to be more of the same where all these people are pleading guilty. We're filling our jails and people are staying there for long periods of time. It's it's bad. So, David, how how is you? Because, I mean, we're trial lawyers. So I, obviously, you know, I'm big on, you know, preparing, preparation, overworking my or outworking, excuse me, the other side. How is it that you can go to trial and for the very first time to know what is this person going to say is when they're testifying on the stand? I mean, I mean, how is that inherently not, you know, a simple due process violation? Like, I don't get to know what the case is against me until I'm in front of a jury with my life at stake. How is that even fair? I mean, fundamentally, we, we right? always we always used to joke about the oh shit witness um, when I was the public defender. <laughs> so, so the prosecutor would call a witness and. You'd whisper to your client, "Hey, who is that?" And they'd say, "Oh shit," <laughs> because because literally we we don't get to know who the witnesses are until until trial. No, I mean you're absolutely right. It's 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 horrible, um, and and that's exactly why so few cases go to trial. And many folks, because they don't know about it until they're in the system, um, always you know most of my clients now are white collar uh, clients. 
they always say, you know, we have to reform this after we're done with this case. This can't be the way it is. People are always sort of shocked that, you know, they've been through civil cases where they've been deposed and and they get access to the other side. But in, in our world, we don't. And and it has to be, as you say, a due process violation. But uh, it seems like I'm beating my head against the wall when I argue those yeah. things. So, so do you, when you're preparing for trial, I mean, obviously you do your own investigation to try to find out who the players are in, you know, all of that, but there's, and maybe there is or is not, you've had an opportunity where you went in, didn't know what a witness was going to say and kind of did it on the fly. I mean, have you had that experience in your, your federal practice in some of your trials or? So, so, you know, by and large now the government, what they're required to do is produce the documents or other evidence that they're going to put in, in their case in chief. So we do get that before trial. So, so in a lot of cases, we know, sort of the universe of of at least documents that are going to come in. Now, it used to be that we would fight about getting, you know, what documents can we get? Can we get access? But in this new sort of age where where everything is preserved, there's emails and and uh, and spreadsheets and word documents. Unfortunately, now what the government tries to do is the opposite with documents. We'll get to witnesses in a second, but with documents they'll say here are the 12 terabytes of material in the case you know, go knock yourself out. And and uh, what we end up fighting about now in recent years is, you know, trying to get the court to order the government to, to explain what are the hot documents, what are the exhibits, what are the relevant documents. Um, so, so, you know, we can sort of piece together when we have the resources, which I'm lucky in most of my cases, I now have the resources to sort of drill down as to what documents are important and then sort of figure out the witnesses from those documents. So we're very, we're not surprised too often these days. When I was a public sure. defender, we were surprised a lot more by witnesses. Um, and yeah, we'd have to cross them sort of with our uh, legal pad and our wits. And that's, you know, but that that was a good training ground um, for how to get to be a better lawyer, I must yeah. say. So so those three years at the PD's office was, was uh, invaluable for my uh, skills as a trial lawyer. Remember when I would, I had just left the state public defender's office, opened up shop with a, f- a colleague from that office. We took on our first federal criminal case. It was a, like a credit card skimming operation, multi-defendants. And uh, I, I never forget going to the government's office. And she's like, here's your discovery on the flash drive. It might've been a CD. We got back and it was I, tens of thousands of pages of impossible to de- decipher financial documents and, and data. And I was just like, wow, this is, Somewhere in here, there's a needle that they're going to get our guy with, I, I'm sure. Otherwise, they would have given it. But yeah, finding it took like months. It was it was absolutely insane. Um, one of the apologies for the dog there. Uh, one of the things that is different between what John and I do and what you do is the interact from an interaction with a client standpoint is we represent everyone on a contingency fee. There's no barrier to entry in terms of money. Everybody on what on our side that we want to help has equal access to justice. Really, they do. It's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. In fact, you fell off the cliff and you're still rolling down the hill because as many people know, or probably many more people should know, it's not just bad enough to get indicted and have your liberty at risk. You want to go out and hire the best lawyer that you can afford to represent you. But then here comes the government with with some pretrial forfeiture stuff, just completely handcuffing your ability to hire counsel of choice. And I know Howard Trebnik and others have tried to litigate it, but that has to be a thorn in the client side and your own, right? So you, you've hit on another really important issue as to why cases don't go to trial. So as you say, in your world, everybody can afford the best because it's on contingency. In my world, it's very different. So in criminal law, many cases, you have to sort of charge fees up front. Um, because if you do, you know, and say uh, it's going to be X amount of hours and, you know, I'll just bill you monthly with the hours. Six months in, if they can't afford you anymore, you're sort of stuck. Once you enter an appearance in federal court, it's very hard to get out. So you have to make sure you're paid up front. And as you say, Jordan, the the federal government now will try to seize assets at the beginning of a case, especially not just in drug cases anymore. I apologize. I'm committing the, the big podcast faux pas with the computer uh, noises going, but uh, you make me feel better with your dog barking in the back. So, so you know, the federal government in drug cases used to seize everybody's assets and say dirty money. And that in that way, um, drug defendants back in the old days would have a hard time getting lawyers. They'd bring in the suitcases of cash, as we've seen in the old movies. White collar defendants were still able to do it. But now 
in the last 15 years, the government will seize white collar defendants' assets when they make an arrest. And so you end up litigating trying to get paid in these white collar cases. And, and I always tell my clients, you know, it's not just your liberty at stake. It's not just your family, your emotions, but your finances are also at stake. Um, and so they try to uh, kneecap you early on so that you cannot afford the lawyer of your choice. And, and many times um, these lawyers and these uh, defendants with lots of money, you would think they're, they're very wealthy, end up with the public defender's office because they, they can't free up their assets in order to hire someone. Yeah, it's just an uphill battle. You're trying to ski up like really right from the outset. So when you can find a, a situation where you're able to hire counsel of choice, obviously you're, you're way ahead of the game, right out of the gate. But I just think members of the public don't really appreciate that enough. Um, let's talk a little bit about something you probably know nothing about anymore, jury selection, because you're in federal court all the time. I mean, I, I say that jokingly, but obviously in state court, we get voir dire pretty extensively. I mean, it's judge specific as it always is, but federal court, because John and I have tried civil and criminal cases there, albeit only a few. Uh, and it's like, judge, I, can I ask a question? Well, they said they could all be fair. What on earth could you possibly want to know? So, yeah, you know, jury selection in in both state court, um, civil and criminal, you get to go in and ask jurors questions and find out who can be fair, who's not the right juror. It's a really, really important process. Unfortunately, in federal court, um, the the exception is you get 10 minutes. The rule is you get no time literally not one minute of questioning to jurors. I have a case right now in the Southern District of New York where I was asking my co-counsel, uh, how long will we get for voir dire in this case? It's a really complicated white collar case. We're going to need to figure out what jurors can be fair to a wealthy uh, person charged in a, in a fraud case. He said, no, not one judge in the Southern District of New York gives any attorney conducted voir dire. They do uh, their own voir dire. It takes a couple of hours they ask, as you say, Jordan, questions like, can you be fair? Um, what is a jury going to say? No, I can't be fair. I mean, in the Glenn Maxwell, huge uh, case in the Southern District of New York, the judge conducted the voir dire in that case. Now, in that case, because it was high profile, the judge ended up giving a questionnaire. And we saw how important these questionnaires and voir dire can be because what happened is one of the jurors lied on the questionnaires and said they were not a victim of sexual abuse. And then that juror ended up getting selected in the jury room, um, explained how he was a victim and convinced other jurors uh, to convict. And after the jury uh, verdict, the defense finds out about it because he's out speaking about it in the media. And you would think that should be an automatic new trial, right? A jury a juror lies on their questionnaire about an issue involved in the case. And the judge uh, said, no, um, no new trial and uh, no do-over, and, and the conviction stands. And, and this is why I call federal court the conviction factor in a lot of cases, because to me, that's such an obvious case of right. you should get a new trial. Right. Um, and an obvious case, by the way, of why we should get voir dire, um, because you know the, the questionnaire itself wasn't enough. If we had voir dire and the lawyers were able to ask questions, this juror probably would have been outed. What do you, what do you think motivates it? Because obviously there's no rule precluding it. It's more of a judicial happenstance that they don't do it as a matter of course. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I've asked lots of judges about this, especially judges who were state court judges who gave it and then come to federal court and they stopped giving it like the next day. Um, there, there's a great story. One, one um, state judge who came over in federal court and tried the very first federal death penalty case here um, decided to tell the lawyers we're going to have no attorney conducted voir dire. Now, you know, a couple months before in state court, she had given like a week of voir dire in a death penalty case. Now she says no attorney conducted voir dire. So the lawyers got together and they said, listen, let's tell her we're, we're not going to agree to this and we're going to go to jail, but we're going to get to ask questions. So the lawyers all agree. So the judge says, okay, now are you guys ready to, to, to pick the jury? And the lawyer said, uh, judge, here's my keys. Um, I, you got to put me in jail if I'm not going to be able to ask questions. 
And he turns around and all the other lawyers are sitting there with their arms crossed. None of them oh. got up with him uh, <laughs> and agreed to uh, stand up. He said, what happened to it? No, I thought you guys were going to support me. So the judge sort of laughed and uh, she said, too bad. We're, you know, you're not going to jail and we're not doing voir dire. Um, and and uh, they went forward. Well, there are other differences, obviously, between doing criminal defense and civil plaintiff work, one of which is as the civil plaintiff, we're bringing the case. So we are lack of a better term, picking the causes of action, framing the theories of liability. Uh, the opposite is true for you, right? The government is picking what charges they want to bring, how they want to bring them, and what theories they're going to bring. And the different, the, the one similarity, or one difference rather, is when we're bringing claims, we're pretty much right down right down the line. I mean, there's a there's precedent. We know what we have to plead. We do it. We're, we can't really be too creative. I notice more and more, at least from what I read and what I listen to, the government seems to be awfully creative with how they criminalize things that you would never even think. I know you had a case, I don't know if it was out of the fifth or the sixth circuit. I can't remember, but uh, what was it with the lab, like urinalysis? They were getting prescriptions from doctors. Hey, this person needs their urine tested. Here's the sample. And the lab forgot to test it for six months or whatever. But then they test it later. They send the bill to do you know, whoever it was, Blue Cross Blue Shield, whatever, some insurer, and that's fraud now. All of a sudden, that's a criminal offense under our federal law. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about not just defending the boilerplate, black and white things that everybody would agree, at least from an allegation standpoint, constitute criminality, but these creative kind of out-of-the-box prosecutions that you have to now defend? Is this even a crime? Why are we here? Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. So again, you know, I always point back to the old days. It used to be there were only 30 federal crimes on the books. You know, we knew what they were, uh, bank robbery, drugs, you know, the federal offenses. Now there's so many federal offenses on the books, you can't count them. They, they've tried to count them and there's so many that they're uncountable. There's a great uh, Twitter uh, guy who, who runs a crime a day. Yeah, he, he posts a crime a day, that's right. He posts a crime a day and he says it will take him to like, you know, 2080 to post all the federal crime. It's it's crazy. Um, so we just don't know how many things are criminalized now. I mean, it, it's insane. And mail and wire fraud have become sort of the darlings. It used to be conspiracy was the prosecutor's darling, but now you know anything can really be counted as as mail and wire fraud. You you mentioned that case um, with the lab in Kentucky. There's a great story uh, about that. So this case was a trial in Frankfort, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, I'd never been to Frankfort, Kentucky before. There's no uh, there's no good hotels in Frankfort. I was going to say, have you been back since? That's the true tell. No, no uh, definitely not. Um, and we stayed in, in this hotel. It was called the Capitol Plaza. It sounds much better than it was. It was next door to the federal courthouse. And the Capitol Plaza was half floors of um, hotel and then half of permanent living. So, you know, senior citizens who had nowhere else to go would would basically you know, rent or buy a old hotel room in this, in this hotel. And so because we were staying there for six weeks, they put us on the floor with the permanent residents. So we'd come back from trial every day and we'd get off the elevator and there was happy hour uh, on the elevator with all the uh, senior citizens who were living there. So there were like 10 of them drinking bourbon when we got off the elevator. So they'd invite us to sit down and tell the trial stories from the day. So they were our focus groups at the end of every day. And, and we learned how to drink bourbon in that trial. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, you know, this that actually brings up indirectly another point I wanted to touch on with you, which is obviously you live in Miami, your practice is walking distance to the magistrate district court, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, the Miami division. But you don't just try cases or handle appellate cases down here in South Florida. You've been across the country. You've mentioned the Southern District of New York. Can you talk a little bit, John and I, our experience is limited to Florida, basically different counties in Florida, different jurisdictions. But can you talk about practicing your craft in completely new venues in federal courts? Yeah. So at first I was pretty hesitant to do it. I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Frankfurt. I have a case in Denver this summer or New York. And I was I was concerned that, you know, we would get home cooking. In other words, the, the lawyers who were from there, the prosecutors, the judges would would rule for and really take it out against Miami lawyers. And what I have found is that's really not the case. Once the judges get to know us, they appreciate good lawyering. They appreciate the interesting cases. Um, you know, I get hometown more in Broward than, than I do, uh, you know, in Broward, 
state court more than I do in federal courts and other places. I had a trial. That's north of the wall. That's what we say, our state <laughs> practitioners, you know. I say the, the land the law forgot, Broward County. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, my, my Broward colleagues will, will uh, disagree with me, but it's true. Um, so, you know, I had a case once in Orlando where the first few times I went to court, the federal judge did not like us, did not like Miami lawyers coming to Orlando. What were we doing up there? Um, but by the end of the case, really liked us, liked our client, Rule 29, the case, um, which was the right thing to do. And it just takes a little bit of time. The other thing I like is that, you know, a lot of times defense lawyers who are in these small towns around the country feel like they can't be as aggressive as they'd like because they have to appear before the judges over and over and over again. Right. So, you know, I'm never going back to Frankfurt, as you say. I'm going to do my thing without worry that the judge is going to get upset with me. If the judge is upset with me, he's upset with me, but I'm going to do my thing. Um, and, and I don't have to really feel the wrath from the next case. If he's going to hold it out against me in a sentencing or whatever, I'm there once. Yeah. I think people, uh, prospective clients, when I used to do criminal work, some of them under the right circumstances, not always had a healthy degree of skepticism about hiring quote unquote local counsel. And it has nothing to do with competence, but had everything to do with confidence. They wanted a lawyer who didn't feel like the next day after the week was done, uh, their case was closed, they were going to go interact with the same people, have to maintain those same relationships. And I think, you know, sometimes that's a very legitimate uh, concern. So let's switch gears a little bit because you don't just do trial cases, but you do appellate work often. Um, I've read some of the briefs you've done. I've listened to your oral arguments and, you know, I wouldn't say this if I didn't mean it, I would just keep moving. I think you're an exceptional oral advocate. Um, you're your writing is great. And I personally listen to them as often as you tip us off on the blog when you have a case coming up. Like Thanks, I remember a cell site case from back in the day was Davis or whatever. And even more recently, I've listened to some stuff. So can you talk a little bit about being able to maintain an effective level of advocacy, knowing that doing trial work is not the same as doing appellate work. Your audience is different. Your delivery is different. Often, you know, how you're asking for relief is different. How do you compartmentalize that? You know, I've talked a lot about the old days in this in this interview a lot, but I'll, I'll talk about it again. You know, lawyers back in the old days would do everything, right? It wouldn't just be plaintiff's work or uh, criminal trial work. Lawyers would do everything. My dad did probate, family, criminal, appellate. You know, they, they wore lots of different hats. And I, in a lot of ways, I think that was a better way to go. Now we're so specialized, right? Like, I do federal criminal defense and people are always shocked that I can do federal appeals too. I think it makes us better lawyers. Um, and for me, at least writing the appeals, arguing the appeals turns me on to what are important trial issues to raise and all different kinds of defenses. I mean, I steal from all the great lawyers. I like stealing stuff um, from other lawyers and a lot of times I learn about it from, from doing appeals, from reading transcripts and other cases from other lawyers. Um, and I think if you just do trials, you don't get that. You don't get to see um, what goes into some of these other cases. Why did that jury instruction get raised? Um, you know, one really hot issue that's going on in the 11th circuit right now in our circuit is the old B-Girls case. So your listeners might like this story. So in Miami, you know, so guys, tourists would come into town, they'd go to uh, the bars on South Beach, and they'd sit at the bar and a woman would come sit next to them. Little did they know the woman was actually a, an employee of the bar. So the bar would hire these women to come sit next to the guys, get them to buy all kinds of drinks, spend tons of money, um, including $1,000 bottle of vodka, you know, all the crazy stuff that you hear about on South Beach. And so the bars and the women got charged with fraud saying that they lied to the customers um, about, that, about the relationship, that they, were, that they were independent when they weren't. And they went to trial, they lost. On appeal, they said, well, listen, that's not fraud. There's a difference between deception and cheating somebody out of something. They didn't, weren't cheated out of anything. They, they were charged $1,000 for a bottle of vodka and they got a bottle of vodka. There was no fraud there. And so, you know, just watching how that played out in the appeal um, has really helped us in all these other trial cases, because now 
in all of these fraud cases, we're raising that B girls issue. You know, what's the difference? Does that line get crossed from deception to fraud? And and it's been a fascinating uh, development in the law. And so I, I enjoy doing appeals. I enjoy uh, keeping my hand in, in all of those, what I think are interesting uh, um, legal issues. And it, I think it helps with the. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a complete circle life as a practitioner. If you're, if you're able to also do the appeals, you can spot issues, realize how, Hey, the next time this thing comes up, it should be preserved, presented and preserved this way to give us a better crack at ultimately getting the law changed. You know, I completely understand and respect the people who are just trial dogs. You know, they're in there looking for the verdict and the verdict tells the story for them, but there's often another chapter for people. Uh, you know, it took some, some time because appeals take time and you can't win them all. But we, even in our own practice, we have had some cases won on appeal uh, in whole or in part. And when you start realizing, hey, there, you don't have to draw a line in the sand at the verdict and say, that's it. Sorry, we tried. You can keep going. I think it helps the clients. Obviously, they're always grateful, even when you even when you lose, I find, because you went the distance. And as the practitioner, the next time it comes up, I just think you're so much better because preservation is key. You know, you can have the greatest issue on earth, but if it's not preserved properly, it's just good uh, water cooler talk. It's not going to go anywhere. Um, now you've obviously interacted with judges all over district court, circuit courts, 11th circuit, sixth circuit, fifth circuit. So you've, you've seen and interacted with a bunch. Um, what do you think are some of like the best tips? I mean, you're, you're teaching in the university of Miami law school now. So I know you're day to day, you know, you're giving input to, you know, a handful of students, but to the, the practitioners out there, when it comes to effective advocacy in writing, uh, and I'm talking really about the appellate side, but you can talk about to the district because there's a lot of memos. What would be some tips you would give people from effective advocacy from a written standpoint? So the writing is is the toughest part, I think, because it takes so much time, right? And and practices now are busy. There's emails popping up every two minutes. There's phone calls. We all know it. Clients want to meet. Um, there's just so many demands on the day. And so finding time to write is very difficult. It's it's as a as a practitioner. I think it's the toughest thing to do is find sort of the chunk of time to to write. Um, and good writing is really hard. What, what I like to do still is read all of the good briefs that are being filed. So I like to read what's being filed in the Supreme Court. And writing changes over time. Um, you see just briefs getting um, much more specific, um, much more direct, much more narrow. Um, and, and writing, I think, is getting better and better. So I, I try to keep up just with reading in terms of um, getting to be a better writer. Plus, I like to make sure I do it way in advance so it gives me time to put it aside before I have to file it and then getting another chance to read it. Because what I find is if I put it down for a few days and then go back to it, uh, a lot of different thoughts come to mind. One other thing that I think is important to do, and again, we don't always have the time to do it, but on appellate briefs especially, is to argue the brief before you file it. So a lot of times, you know, I used to file a brief, it would get close to oral argument. And then I'd realized as I was presenting the oral argument, like, man, that, that argument doesn't really work. I thought it worked on paper, but when you try to articulate it and argue it, it doesn't work as well. So I, I like to have a debate about the brief. So I'll give the brief to my wife or my colleagues and, and I'll say, okay, you be the prosecutor, let's debate it. And, and a lot of times we figure out, well, that argument doesn't work. But this one actually that we had as 3A should be 1B because it's much better than we thought it was. Stuff like that. Yeah, I think putting in the time, it shows, right? The hardest thing, the hardest thing to do is to write something concise, tight, and persuasive with, with a high quality uh, work product on it. And I found, you know, earlier in my career, I've said this before, and I, I just, I have to cop to it. I would get so emotionally charged whether it was at trial level or even on appeal sometimes, even though I knew better, it was just so hard when you're looking in black and white at this injustice in a transcript or an order and you know it's wrong and there's precedent already existing in your favor. And I realized you just got to, you know, extinguish that fire sometimes because the judges are never going to care as much as you. They're, they're looking at a bigger picture. They just want to get it right for that jurisdiction. You want to help one person. Um, that's the one tip I give people, especially in the trial court phase, especially in state court. You know, it's easy to, you know, exchange strong rewarded emails and sometimes you receive them and you want to respond, but don't let it bleed through into your motions, your responses, your briefs, because the judges don't give a shit. Uh, and in fact, 
if you make them give a shit, then it's really just going to be at your, <laughs> they're not going to like it. We once had a big case in the middle district of Florida and we were from South Florida. And so was the defense counsel and near the eve of trial, it was a very contentiously litigated case. It was a very serious case. The judge at a hearing was just like, I don't know what it is with you, South Florida. What can't you just play nice? I'm so sick of reading these, these briefs. And, you know, ever since then, I've just completely tamed it back because it just doesn't do any service for your client. It you makes know? you feel good when you, when you write it uh, and when you hit file, but then it usually, usually backfires. I will say this about appellate stuff too, because I think it is also another one of the reasons so few cases go to trial. So at least in my practice, um, you know, we talked about 97, 98% of cases resolved. Of the two K of the two percent that go to trial, of those that get convictions, ninety something percent of those are affirmed on appeal. Now, it's not that ninety percent of them don't find error. In many of the cases, appellate courts find error. They just find what's called harmless error. So they'll say, you know what, you're right. Um, the judge shouldn't have let that evidence in, or you know, you're right. The prosecutor shouldn't have said that in closing, but we find that harmless. We find that it wouldn't have made a difference in the verdict. And you say, wait, what? what? Like, this was a close case. How can you say that? How, I mean, how do you know what the jury would have done if they didn't see that document that the government blew up in closing? Like, and so the appellate courts, um, I think, put so much emphasis on backing up what happens at trial that that people are saying, you know, even if we have some good issues, um, at the trial level, the appellate court isn't going to do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. finality gets elevated over potentially the right outcome sometimes. I've I've been on the receiving end of an opinion where it's 20 pages. It's a lot to write about to end with, and therefore we affirm. You know, it's, <laughs> a, lot, it's a lot to explain to say, but nevertheless, you don't get relief. Right. Uh, John, you got any? that i've been hijacking this whole thing no no i mean listen i'm i'm learning as always but no i mean you know kind of to, to two points and you know the brief war story because i feel like that's all i can have nowadays but no in federal court obviously there's strict guidelines when they file something you have 14 days to respond seven days to file a reply i'm the notorious person to wait 13 or 14 days before i start drafting a response and i i remember specifically we had a case in front of judge altanaga and i wrote I spent 14 hours in a single day, closed my doors, turned off, no emails, no phone, wrote a Daubert challenge to an expert. And at, at 11.30 when I had to file, and it was the day it was due, I checked the local rules and it was one of the motions I had to confer on. And, and for those of you that don't practice in federal court, you have to physically confer by phone. Well, middle district is by phone. Southern district is a little more loose with, an, with the opposing party to see whether they'll agree to your motion. I couldn't do that because it was 1130. I sent a singular email, filed it. Judge Altanaga, I don't know if this was a compliment or otherwise, but did not struck the motion because I didn't confer saying I clearly had put more effort into that than in just a singular day. So I had time to confer. Right. Not knowing yeah, that's I just not born of your laziness. It's what David said. We're <laughs> right. all so busy. It's hard to find the time. So so it, it you know, for those, at least in federal court, if it's a 14 day deadline, yeah, take seven days, say, call it a seven day deadline and start working because I had that experience. But I thought it was a compliment that she thought what I did in one day must have taken <laughs> five right. days. Right. <laughs> I, right. I, you know, but let me ask you this, because I think in federal court, when I hear harmless error, I think it's much different in federal versus state in federal. I don't think any error arises higher than harmless at least all the opinions that i've read like yeah that was wrong you know and it's yeah that was wrong this was wrong a lot of times it's criminal defendants but it's not good enough to get a new trial you know florida the state courts that supreme court kind of changed it to where harmless and are now the benefit of the um the error has the burden to show that the jury verdict wasn't affected right it, it kind of flipped it a little bit saying almost like presumptively it should affect it can you show me that it didn't Right, kind of say, and then they get a new trial. So I feel like there's a little bit of a difference in between state and federal as harmless error, you know, really is addressed um, by the appellate courts. At least, you know, I don't see many federal opinions and trials coming back. Obviously, in, in our experience and from ones that I've read, obviously, David, you you probably won some at the trial or at the appellate level for a new trial. I'm assuming. So, so, so you know, the the harmless error stuff is. In federal court, you have the burden to show that it was not harmless. Right. Um, so, 
you know, I had a case in Puerto Rico that went to the trial and one of, it was a criminal antitrust case of all things. And the, the uh, allegation was that the goods going to Puerto Rico, there was price fixing on the transportation of those goods. So we said, well, the trial shouldn't be in Puerto Rico because all Puerto Ricans are supposed victims of this crime. And so the jury can't really, uh, the, the jurors are going to be victims. They're, they're, they're going to be told that the price of their goods were higher because of the, of the crime. And the prosecutor said, don't worry, we're not going to say anything like that in an opening. We're not going to present any evidence of that. Um, and the judge said, OK, if, you, if you're promising not to make that argument, then then fine, we'll have the trial here in Puerto Rico. Very first words out of the prosecutor's mouth and opening statement. Your school lunches are higher because of this conspiracy. You know, we jump out of our chair. We object. Um, the judge gives a limiting instruction. We say that's not enough. And throughout the trial, it keeps happening over and over again. So we appeal and we say, hey, you know, this was not harmless. This was misconduct that affected the verdict. And the First Circuit said, nope, that, that was harmful. There was overwhelming evidence. So the, their comments were um, were harmless, which to me is just crazy. Yeah. Do you, you know, trying a case in Puerto Rico and not wanting it there from a venue standpoint, I know I can tell from just some recent filings, you don't need to talk about, you know, pending cases in detail, but there are times I wasn't even aware of this. So there are certain federal crimes where the venue can just be based on where, what is it, where they arrest you as opposed to where the crime occurred, right? If it was like. Yeah. So this is our case right now in, in Denver, um, Colorado. It's a, it's a first degree murder uh, accusation where the accusation is overseas that our client, uh, is alleged to have murdered his wife overseas. And so he lived in Phoenix. They could have arrested him in Phoenix and the case would have been in Phoenix. Um, but the prosecutor and the agents live in Denver. So they wanted the case in Denver. So they waited for him to travel uh, to Mexico on vacation, arrested him there and brought him to Denver so that the venue would be in Denver. Uh, we, we challenged that. Um, the judge ruled against us, but so that's not an appeal yet. We have our trial in July, but but uh, our venue challenge was rejected so far. Yeah, I, I read that order, and I don't mean to be crass or insensitive, but it reminded me of a coin-operated claw machine where the government just gets to pick you up and put you wherever you want. That's I like that analogy. It's good. Stuff, stuff sledding. Well, look, I don't want to take too much of your time. It's Friday afternoon. You know, people always say don't make your don't meet your heroes; they'll disappoint. I completely disagree in this context. I admire everything you've done. I think you've been a tremendous tremendous beacon of like inspiration for local practitioners, not just yeah. criminal defense lawyers. You're always giving back. You're always sharing your thoughts on the national stage and even local. So, on behalf of the whole you know legal community, especially that in South Florida, thank you for what you do and thank you for your time. Enjoy your weekend. No, thank you so much for having me. This was really cool, and it's good to talk to real trial lawyers and and real champions of justice. So thank you, Jordan. Thank you, John. And uh, I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, thanks, right. David, Take again. Care, everybody. Thanks, see you guys. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at onjusticepod on Instagram and Twitter. Or check out Discord for plaintiffattorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.